reading is taken from Ezra chapter 9 this morning and uh, it's on page 481 on the Red New Pew Bibles. Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, and this is Ezra speaking, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, says Ezra, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered round me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and I prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of the peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and re-intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. 
We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. This is the word of the Lord through Ezra. Well, good morning, everyone. Morning, lovely to see you all here today, and good to be able to continue our series as we work through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is our fourth message in the eight-week series, and it's our final one in Ezra. So from next week, we'll be getting into Nehemiah. Before we look at uh, today's passage, I want to talk about a television show that I like. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with this show, What Would You Do? This is an American TV show hosted by um, John Quinones. I think there might be a UK version, maybe there was an attempted Australian version, but the US version is the famous one. In this show, they set up scenarios in public places with hidden cameras and actors, and they set up some kind of conflict scenario to see if anyone reacts. Hence the name of the show. What would you do, is the question. Would you respond like the also unwitting sort of participants, the, the public who are in it, or would you act differently? You can find lots of clips of this online. Warning, it's a little bit addictive, I have to say. Um, but one classic that they love to do is, it's said in America, is having a mixed-race couple, usually um, a black American and a, and a white American, usually at a cafe or a restaurant somewhere, and then someone, another actor, they're all, they're all actors, another actor comes in and confronts them and says something you know, unpleasant, racist perhaps, and the question is, what, what do the people in the rest of the restaurant do? All the cameras are hidden. No one knows these three are actors. Do people respond? Do they step in? Do they say something? Do they engage with the, the person who's being rude? And um, they run this in different states across America as well to try and get a sense whether it's different in different parts of America. Anyway, I'm not going to give you lots of spoilers. You can, you can look it up online. Easy to say, it's, it's fascinating viewing. Very interesting. Lots of different scenarios too. The reason I raise this is today's passage is about this topic. It's about interracial marriage, which might feel like a bit of a strange topic to be considering in you know, 21st century Australia. No one really bats an eyelid about that here. But in Ezra's time, for some reason, as we'll see, this was a big deal. And we'll look at this in a moment. I'm going to give it just a very quick historical background to today's passage. We've had it in other talks, but again, just to catch you up, here's my one-minute summary. Ezra and Nehemiah are narrative section of the Old Testament that come right at the end of the Old Testament history. God's people have been in the land, they've had judges and kings, the kingdom's been divided and the people have been exiled. The, the northern kingdom was exiled to Assyria and then about 150 years later, the southern kingdom was exiled to Babylon. The capital of Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were sent off. But then after a number of decades, the kingdom of Persia overtook the kingdom of Babylon as the, the superpower of the eastern world and the new king, Cyrus, king of Persia, decided to allow God's people to return. In three waves, they returned to Jerusalem. And in chapters 1 to 6 of Ezra, that's the, that was the first two messages in this series, it was really about the first wave of returnees under a, a, a man called Zerubbabel. They returned, they actually built the temple again and establish themselves back in the land. Ezra 7 to 10, the last half of the book, last week and this week's message, is about the second wave of returnees, including Ezra, who leads this group. And Ezra chapter 7 to 8, we looked at this last week, was about the group arriving in Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 8, they do. They arrive in Jerusalem, they, they offer some sacrifices, 
They count out the silver and gold brought from Persia. And then we begin, we begin chapter 9 with this bad news. Let me just read these first couple of verses again. After these things have been done, the leaders, that's the leaders of the people, came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices, like that of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the people around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Ezra hears about these marriages of Jewish people to foreign wives, wives of other nations, and it says he's appalled, he's shocked. We'll see why in a moment. We then read, as we heard, um, read from Bob, the, the prayer of confession of Ezra as he comes before God, a detailed prayer where he pours out his heart to God in repentance for what's happened. And it ends with this, this, this word of deep remorse, Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. As we move through into chapter 10, we read that other exiles gathered around Ezra. It's like his repentance, his deep confession, was a catalyst for them to examine their own hearts. And many of them also came before God and repented. And then one of them, this guy Shechaniah, if you read chapter 10, you'll see this, he suggests we need to do something. He says we need to separate ourselves from our foreign wives. So Ezra agrees, there's this summons for everyone to gather and uh, they all sort of arrive at the, at the capital. And there's also this sense of kind of distress and confusion when they arrive. We, we read that it's like the rainy season, so they're out there getting cold and wet in the rain, waiting to hear from Ezra. Ezra declares their guilt to them, they, they accept this, but they say, look, this is going to take time to sort this out and we're, we're getting very wet out here in the rain. Um, and so they delegate the task and over the next 12 days, the process takes place and the people are separated and those marriages ended. And that is how the book of Ezra finishes. I think passages like this are really tricky uh, and they're tricky for a couple of reasons. You might wonder, well, why, why is interracial marriage so bad? Why would this even be an issue? And I think it's important to explain passages like this uh, because the risk is that it could seem like Jewish theology and maybe by extension Christian theology is a bit racist with these kind of passages. You might also wonder, well, if these marriages are problematic for some reason, I mean, is separation the best result, particularly in a, a society where really the wife and any children were very dependent on the, the man of the house as the breadwinner, that was the society it was in, to be, to be sent away could be very destructive for them. And you might even think, in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians who have been converted, who have become believers, but they are already married to someone who's not a follower of Jesus, in the New Testament, we, we read, don't separate. We, we read, stay with your wife, be, stay with your husband, live at peace with them if you can. It's not a call for immediate separation. So why? What, what's going on here? Why would Ezra encourage this sort of thing? All right, let's have a look. In two places in Ezra 9, there are a couple of big clues about what he's worried about. In the opening verse, he says, 
uh, that the leaders say, the people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. And then in Ezra's prayer, he echoes that phrase. He says, by their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. It's quite a striking phrase, perhaps. Detestable practices. What, what is this all about? What is he going on about here? Well, when God's people, many hundreds of years before, left Egypt under Moses, they entered the wilderness. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And they prepared to enter this land. They prepared to enter the land God had prepared for them for the first time. And they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And one thing that happened there was God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments and other laws, which you can find in the first few books of the Bible. And the law had a number of purposes, but one of the big purposes was to distinguish them from the nations that would be around them. As they arrived, there would be other nations around them, and God wanted them to be distinguished, different, set apart from those nations. And so he gave them lots of laws. And if you're reading some of the Old Testament laws and you find some that seem very strange, there's a very good chance it's because it's a law to avoid a practice of the nations around them, even a strange kind of worship practice. God wanted the people to be distinguished, set apart as belonging to God. And one of the big ways they would do this, as they entered the land for the first time, many hundreds of years before Ezra, was to avoid intermarriage. God knew if his people started to marry with the nations, they would soon lose their identity as God's people. And also there was this risk of foreign worship. So back in Deuteronomy, one of those early books of the Bible, as the people are preparing to enter the land for the first time, This is what they're instructed by God and by Moses. Do not intermarry with them, that is the foreign nations. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is the risk. This is the big risk of intermarriage here. It leads to worshipping foreign gods. The gods of the foreigners that have been married in. And there's kind of a second step to this risk here. This is also Deuteronomy. Again, God's people preparing to enter the land the first time we read this. Moses is writing from the Lord. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to, uh, to um, imitate sorry, the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. This is the second part of the risk. It's the practices, the worship practices of these nations, practices like divination or sorcery, and worst of all, the practice of child sacrifice. That's a Phoenician uh, child sacrifice cemetery uh, that's in Carthage from people from the same region. A common practice. These are the detestable practices. It's that phrase again, isn't it, that we saw in Ezra? The detestable practices from that region. This is the issue that we have here with intermarriage. It will lead to foreign worship and detestable practices, including, worst of all, child sacrifice. And there's one more reason, I think, why this is so painful for Ezra. So painful for him. You see, years after that first entry, after the judges, after King Saul and David, 
we have King Solomon. And we read this about King Solomon. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of, his, of David his father had been. He followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. This is near the end of Solomon's life, through the end of his reign. He directly disobeyed that direction, didn't he? He took many foreign wives, and we see that they turned his heart away from worshipping the one true God. And Solomon's sin, his intermarriage, and the, the false worship that came from that led to the division of the kingdom that we saw at the very start, which in turn would lead eventually to the exile. Maybe put yourself in Ezra's shoes here. Ezra has just arrived. He's arrived in Jerusalem. He's done his long journey. We heard about all his planning and preparation in chapter 7 and 8. He's arrived. He's got this important leadership role now amongst the, the new arrivees. And look, Ezra's no dummy. He would have known there'd be some stuff, some stuff he's going to need to deal with, to clean up a bit. He's probably thinking maybe some workers are being defrauded their wages. Maybe I need to sort that out. Maybe there's some kind of street violence that needs to be dealt with. You know, some, some temple upkeep that hasn't really been looked after properly. He's probably thinking there's, work, there's going to be work to do. But just imagine when Ezra arrives. He arrives and the first thing he's informed of is the same sinful practice that really led God's people to exile in the first place. No wonder he's appalled. He's shocked. Of all the practices, he's probably thinking, of all the different sinful patterns that could have popped up, and, and some will, he's thinking, surely not this one, surely not. Surely this is the one that we would have said, never again are we going to fall into this pattern of behavior. And yet here he is dealing with Solomon's sin all over again, just a few decades into their fresh start into the land. Well, what might this mean for us? As I said before, racial, interracial marriage is not an issue in our day. We are not entering a, new, a promised land full of foreign worshippers uh, with the distinct need to maintain some kind of particular identity and avoid detestable practices like child sacrifice. So interracial marriage, avoiding interracial marriage, is not a direct application of this passage, in case you're wondering. But there's a lot in this for us. A lot in this for us, I think. This passage, I think, is a great example of that tension that each of us feels between being in the world but not of the world. You may have heard this phrase before, that Christians need to be in the world but not of the world. Uh, that is, we need to live in this world for all its challenges. We are not called to be hermits or, um, or monks or to isolate ourselves from the rest of the world somehow. But we're not to become of the world. We're not to just uncriti uncritically kind of absorb all the practices, all the patterns of thought and behaviour we see around us. Now, back in Joshua's day, when the people first came into the land, after that exodus from Egypt, they came essentially with an army and a direction to empty the land, to make it for God. But in Ezra, this is Ezra now we're looking at, when God's people came into the land with Ezra, 
they didn't have an army. They didn't have the right to, to clear out house and to sort of set things up afresh for God's people. No, they were under the guidance of Persia. They were living really under this broad foreign kingdom. They had no ability to start wars. They were always going to be in the world, among the foreign nations that were already there, making the best of it as God's people. But Ezra makes it clear, you are not to be of the world. You're not to absorb those detestable practices you're going to find around you or worship foreign gods. Look, it's very similar for us too. In 21st century Warnable, I think we are to be in the world but not of the world. What might that look like for us? What detestable practices might we need to avoid? What false worship might we need to be careful? Let me give a few examples. I think one obvious example is the false worship of wealth. I think money is still the dominant God of our culture, if I was going to name one. Maybe it's always been, maybe it always will be. But God calls us to be generous, to use our wealth for the benefit of others, while the culture around us promotes greed, accrual of wealth, spending on ourselves more than people in need. When I see or I, I read about excessive spending on luxury items, while many people struggle to find food for their day, I wonder, could this be a detestable practice that God sees today? Another example that I'm painfully aware of is the way we use our time. Uh, the Bible reminds us that every day is a gift from God, a wonderful gift from God, who is the author of time. And yet, I think we often just see our time as belonging to us for my own pursuits, for my own use. And I'm not really even just talking about sinful use of time here, I'm talking even just about trivial use of time. I think I'm aware of this because it's something I particularly struggle with. I struggle to remember that my time belongs to the Lord and I should serve Him with it as much as I seek to do my wealth. I wonder if we can avoid the detestable practice of greed towards our own time. I think being in the world can be difficult when it comes to relationships as well. God calls us to love our neighbour as ourself and love in the Bible is described as this radical, other person-centred, self-giving love. The most powerful example of which is, of course, the death of Jesus on the cross, giving his life in love for our sake. But the model of relationships that we see in the world is, uh, is all about what you can get out of them, I think. Online, having the right connections, friends and followers. It's all about social status. It's not about real love or friendship. The world says we should cut out those relationships, those friends that are a drag, that are absorbing our time. I wonder if this expendable attitude towards friendships and relationships, ending a connection with someone because it's no longer convenient, perhaps, I wonder if that might be seen by God to be a detestable practice today. I often think of the world as well, the world we live in, the environment, this beautiful creation God's made for us. What's the worldly perspective on this? Well, I think worldly perspectives on the environment differ. For some, the world is an object of worship, almost like a false god, an object of adoration. But for others, the resources God's blessed us with are just expendable, totally expendable, just resources to be exploited. We're called to live in the world, but not of the world. We worship the Lord alone, the creator of all things. But we also hear God's call to be good stewards of our creation, to care for it, to minimise our impact on it, to seek its flourishing and its peace. And so we reject the detestable practices both of nature worship and of thoughtless exploitation. What about political discourse? 
This is always a, uh, an interesting topic. I think the world's message on this is get angry. Get angry. No matter which side of any issue or topic you fall on, get aggressive. Use rude, unloving, sarcastic language to talk about others and their positions. Can't be soft. You can't risk being soft. The other side's not going to be soft. But Jesus calls us to love our enemies, even when we might disagree with them. We're called to watch our tongues, maybe to watch the comments we type as well online, as this can reflect God's love in our engagement with others. I wonder if we can reject the detestable practice of harsh, unloving comments directed towards others on difficult issues. Ezra, this is what he was worried about. He was worried about detestable practices seeping into the community that he was called to lead. In his case, through those mixed marriages, through the foreign worship that would follow. For him, it was practices like sorcery, witchcraft, child sacrifice. These detestable practices are much less common today. But just like the exiles, God calls us to be set apart. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is something we share with the exiles from a long time ago. We are called out by God to be different, to be a special people, to distinguish ourselves from the world even while we live in it and we live among it and to avoid the detestable practices of our day. The end of Ezra is a very heavy passage and it's a very heavy way to finish the book but there is this wonderful note of grace and hope in it. I want to finish with this. As I mentioned before, I'm sure Ezra was expecting some kind of sinful practices when he arrived, something that needed addressing. And even that would have been sad to acknowledge. Up until chapter 9, really, there had been no large sort of issue of sin that had come through from the exiles. Maybe for some who had arrived in the land, there was this great sense of a fresh start. Yes, as a nation, they'd sinned in the past, they'd been exiled, the, the, the time in exile, I'm sure, had been mixed, but now it was a, a chance to start again, a fresh leaf. God's called us to be faithful, to be holy. This is our opportunity to be the people God's called us to be, freshly in the land. But of course, it doesn't take long until sin and disobedience is there again. Old patterns start up. It's really hard to see, isn't it? It's sort of heartbreaking when you think of that chance for a fresh start that proves to be false. Listen to this. This is from Shechaniah, the gentleman in chapter 10, who encourages Ezra that they can do something. He says this, chapter 10, verse 2. He says, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. In spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. I think it's a wonderful encouragement there. In spite of this, there is still hope. Shechaniah then suggests repentance and a change of behaviour so that God will continue to be with them despite what they've done. Well, this is the same for us. As I suggested, a number of detestable practices that we might be surrounded with, and, and there will be others. Maybe there was one or two that rang true for you, a risk you know that you face in your own life. It's easy to despair, I think, when you think of those things, and it's certainly good to repent and confess. But I want to leave us with these words of Shechaniah. There is still hope. 
our sin, our adoption of a detestable practice does not have to define us. It does not have to ultimately separate us from God. Ezra and the other leaders probably looked at that and thought, oh my goodness, well there goes our chance for a fresh start. Hear this about God. God is the God of fresh starts. God is always giving us a fresh start. Another chance to repent, to turn back to God in confession and faith and to seek to restore that relationship with Him again. 1 John 1, 9, we read, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through what Jesus has done for us, there are countless fresh starts available for us. Each time we confess our sins, God forgives us through Jesus. And it's a wonderful opportunity this morning for us to share in communion together. In communion, we gather to remember the meal that Jesus shared with his followers before he died, a simple meal of bread and the cup. And at this meal, when Jesus gave these elements to his followers, he said, this is what I'm about to do for you. I'm about to give my life freely for you so that you can be forgiven, so you can have a fresh start with God. Jesus gave up his life in love on the cross for us. So God's righteous anger, God's very justifiable anger at all our various detestable practices, exploitation, failure to love others, greed, all God's anger and right judgment at those things would fall not on us, but would instead fall on his son, Jesus Christ. And we can have a fresh start. Isn't that good news? Let me pray, let me lead us in a prayer of confession and forgiveness, uh, seeking God's forgiveness and a fresh start. Lord God, I thank you today for the book of Ezra. And Lord, as we have heard this heavy and difficult passage, Lord, I thank you so much for that message of hope. Shekinah knew that you could give a fresh start, that there is still hope. Lord, today we come before you aware of our own tendency towards disobedience of you, towards ignoring your call upon our lives. Lord, your call upon us to love you with our whole heart, to love our neighbours as ourselves. Lord, we acknowledge that we fall short of this in all sorts of different ways. And Lord, we are sorry. And Lord, we are also so grateful that you do not leave us in our guilt, but through what Jesus has done for us, you forgive us and restore us to yourself. Lord, that you give us a fresh start. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we prepare to share the bread and the cup and remember that meal Jesus shared with his disciples,